We're going to continue on with our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles located directly in the seat in front of you, underneath, and I encourage you to open it up to page 902 with me. Once again, Scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I hope you all had a happy Father's Day the week prior. I remember starting the message saying, Happy Father's Day, and I didn't say anything after. Um, In my mind, I had some things that I wanted to share, but I chose not to. I pulled back because I just wanted to, sometimes I just want to see, you know, like what you all post on your social media accounts. Like if your father's just somebody that's goofy, or you see him as... uh, your father, you know, um, someone that you ought to honor and respect. So I, I was very happy to see that every post that I saw really honored their father well. And our church is growing in that respect, and I'm very thankful to God for that. But we are continuing on with our study in First Corinthians, as Hoyong said, and especially right now, this whole chapter is on the gift of glossa, or tongues, or languages. And so as we begin this sermon, let's start with a prayer. Almighty gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we might rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts, to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. I had a conversation the other week uh, with someone on a similar topic, but I, I was talking to them, I don't know where it came up, but I was talking to them about nursery rhymes and lullabies and um, just sharing with them like some of the things that we look at and sing. Sounds like you just sing it, you know? You just sing it. Uh, for instance, uh, Rockabye Baby. I don't know if you're all familiar with it, but I think so, right? Rockabye Baby. Rockabye Baby on the treetop, right? When the wind blows, the cradle rock. And if you keep on, keep on listening to the song, you have to sometimes maybe you might stop and wonder what it's about. So what is this about? It's about rocking a baby goodbye or to sleep on the treetop. 
And so that's weird. So that should catch your attention. Uh, when the wind blows, the cradle rocks. Uh, is the person lazy? I was like, why is it on the treetop? But then the next line is, when the bough breaks and the bough is like the large uh, branch of the tree, the baby will fall, down will come baby, cradle and all. So this is a nursery rhyme that we sing to our babies about babies dying. So that's interesting, right? Um, what's the lesson of the story? So when this was, when we have our first record of this printing, was it around the 1600s, um, uh, was, um, in, I'm sorry, 1900s, uh, it was about, um, it, it had a little disclaimer saying, this is about pride. And so you have to wonder, what about this is pride? So perhaps when we don't care, take care of our babies, you know, we're just tired of rocking the baby. Let the wind rock the baby. So you put the wind, uh, you put the cradle on the treetop so the parents are not rocking the baby, the mom's not rocking the baby. And then you're like, look at this, so that I could do what other things. Um, so as you climb the ladder, you climb the tree, you put the cradle on uh, the bow or the branch to rock the baby, and then what happens? The bow will break. So it's about being humble and about doing your part as a parent to rock the baby yourself and don't expect the wind to rock it. And so that's a fun one. I don't know. There, there's a ton. We talked about a ton of nursery rhymes. There's one that I wanted to go over with you. That was just a teaser, an appetizer for, to, for this one. And this one, this one is called Three Blind Mice. Have you guys heard of this? Three Blind Mice. Okay, I'm not going to sing it. But it's Three Blind Mice, Three Blind Mice. See how they run, see how they run. And I watched a recent children's program because we have so many babies. They're watching all this TV stuff. And they have these nursery rhymes. And they change the words because these are the actual words. Three blind mice, three blind mice. See how they run, see how they run. They all ran after the farmer's wife who cut off their tails with a carving knife. Did you ever see such a sight in your life as three blind mice? That's the actual words, okay? So it's about three blind mice. Look at them run. They all ran after the farmer's wife who cut off their tails with a carving knife. Did you ever see such a sight in your life as three blind mice? So you're like, what is this about? And I don't know if uh, kids sing it in these actual lyrics today. Uh, I don't know if parents would want to hold them back. But if you look at almost all the nursery rhymes, the kids were singing these things like, you know, Ring Around the Rosy, you know, Black Plague, London Bridge Falling Down, killing, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of people, right? <laughs> anyway, we're all singing these things. You know, Jack and Jill, they came down and they broke his head, right? And so um, we're all singing, the, the kids sing these things because in a nursery around, you're teaching them the truths and the harsh realities of life. And you're teaching them in a way that's fun to sing, sure, but it's not like you're not coddling, over-coddling them and not showing the truth about the world. The world isn't just daisies and cotton candy. It's not rainbows everywhere. That's not the world. The world has storms. It has, um, you know, it has tumultuous times that you will get through and sometimes to prepare these kids, they would write these nursery rhymes. But now if you look at the nursery rhymes that our kids hear and they sing, it's all kind of, you know, tapered down. But Three Blind Mice, that has been actually sung for about 500 years. That's an, it's an old nursery rhyme. And it hasn't changed until 
most recently where the last one I saw about three blind mice is they took a rocket ship onto the moon, which is made out of cheese, and they ate food. So um, that has nothing to do with the original nursery rhyme. So who are the three blind mice? Well, tradition has it that the three blind mice were the Oxford martyrs. The Oxford martyrs, if you don't know, were the Protestants that were tried for heresy in 1555. Remember when the Reformation happened in 1517. And so in 1555, these Oxford martyrs, these Protestants were tried and they were burned in the stake in Oxford, England. And why? For their religious beliefs. And this is um, during, uh, the three Oxford martyrs are Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cranmer. These are famous reformers in England that you probably heard of if you studied the Reformation. But Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cranmer, um, they all were burned at the stake. By who? By whom? Queen Mary I. Queen Mary I hated the Protestant movement. She wanted to continue to hold on to the Roman Catholic tradition. So Queen Mary I was dubbed Bloody Mary. So now you know where Bloody Mary comes from. But Bloody Mary is from Queen Mary I, and she killed over 280 Protestant leaders in her lifetime. She was, of course, succeeded by Queen Elizabeth I, but, you know, you can read that in your history books. But that's what Three Blind Mice is about. It's about the Oxford martyrs. Um, <clears throat> sometimes when we study certain things, you might ask yourself, how come I never heard or thought about these things before? Why does it feel like something like this is brand new? Is it because, is it because what I am saying is brand new? Is it because the three blind mice and the Oxford martyrs, I'm just making it up? Or maybe it could be because we are overlooking what the text plainly says. What does the text plainly say? And this is why it's so important that we study the Bible, that we're paying attention during this time, that we're not looking down on this time as, you know, and I'm not, of course, either, saying, oh, this is where I get to say whatever I want, you know, do whatever I want. But this is where we study the Bible word for word, sentence by sentence, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Because it's so important. Because many times we could have read these passages and not know what we're saying. I can't believe this is what three blind mice were talking about. I can't believe when I'm singing Rockabye Baby to my kid, it's about another baby dying. And so these are things that I want us to be aware of. And if there is a difficult portion in the Bible, and I've said this before, how do we interpret? This is called hermeneutics. It may be a fancy word, but all it means is interpretation of the text or the Bible. How do we hold to our hermeneutic? Is two ways. Number one, we dive into context. This is what I mean by grammatical historical methods. That means we dive into the context, which means you look at history, and we look at the grammar. That's the grammatical historical method. That's context. That's number one. Number two is we look at biblical theology. Biblical theology just means what does the rest of the Bible say on this subject because the Bible does not contradict itself. And so we take these two methods in our hermeneutic, in our interpretation, to read the Bible word for word, 
verse by verse, sentence to sentence, chapter to chapter, book to book. If we don't do this, if we don't do this, we end up singing these songs without having absolutely no idea what lessons is supposed to teach, what it really means, what we're singing. If we don't do this, we most invariably end up with dangerous subjectivism. And this dangerous subjectivism has plagued our modern church where we use the Holy Writ to prop or puff our own selves up, making it mean whatever we want it to mean. We just want this to mean this. And that's what is happening today. I believe that the twisting of Scripture may be the most dangerous poison that young Christians will face. The twisting of scripture is the most dangerous poison that young Christians face. It, because it will not only deter your growth, it will outright kill you. This is when scripture was used in the past to rationalize slavery in the United States. The scripture was used to promote national socialism in Germany. Remember, national socialist is where we get the word Nazi, National Socialism, in Germany. But churches and God-fearing people who understood the Bible stood against this terrible twisting of Scripture. Men like William Wilberforce, who led the movement for the abolition of slavery, and churches in Germany that stood in opposition to Hitler, and they wrote something that we now have on record as the Barman Declaration. So when Hitler was taking over Germany, the churches stood up like, of course there were these state churches that sided with them, like the big large churches, but there were so many churches that stood, eventually they were killed, they were martyred too, they were put in the concentration camps with the Jewish people, but they stood up while Hitler was rising in power, they wrote the Barman Declaration. This is why I mentioned this in particular this morning, because I think it has a lot to do with what we are facing, what our brother Sammy prayed to. This, they, Barman Declaration has six articles. I'm not going to go through all six. I'm just going to go through Article 5, okay? Article 5 of the Barman Declaration says this, Fear God, honor the emperor. Fear God, honor the emperor. They get this from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to read what it says. Scripture tells us that, in the as yet unredeemed world in which the church also exists, the state has by divine appointment the task of providing for justice and peace. See, it's telling, um, the Barman Declaration is showing not its own government, but anybody, the whole world, anybody who's reading this, that this is what we believe that scripture is saying. What is the role of government? The role of government is a divine appointment. That means authority has been given by God for what? To promote justice and peace. That's the task that the government has received. And so it continues on, but I'm not going to read all of it. And then it goes on to what they reject. So we reject the false doctrine as though the state, over and beyond its special commission, should and could become the single and totalitarian order of human life 
thus fulfilling the church's vocation as well. That means the government does not take over your entire life. It cannot tell you what to do at every moment of your life. This also goes against what the church's role is. God's given authority to the church that the church has authority over us as well. So they're rejecting it. You can't take over the church. You can't dictate to the church what the church can do. That's not the role of government. Again, this is we reject the, this is the second we reject the false doctrine of this article 5. Okay? Number 1 is you can't become a totalitarian order for all of human life. That's not what God intends. When the Bible says here God honor the emperor, it's not saying that we submit to the emperor as we do to God. We submit to the emperor in the, in the ways that we need to. We submit to the church in the ways that we need to. There is that distinction made in the word. Here's the number two part of what they reject. We reject the false doctrine as though the church, over and beyond its special commission, should and could appropriate the characteristics, the tasks, and the dignity of the state, thus itself becoming an organ of the state. This is what was happening in Germany, where now the state or the government had the church as an organ. That means the church was a part of the state, not separate from the state, but a part of the state where the state, again, was dictating to the church what it should do. I'm saying all this because more pastors are being arrested around the world. They're being uh, imprisoned, tortured, um, martyred, and killed. This is not, this is happening in China. This is across the oceans. But this is not only in those. This, this is happening right across our border. In Canada, more pastors are being arrested. Most recently in Calgary, a pastor named Tim Stevens was arrested for holding an outdoor service. So this is what happened. In Calgary, Canada, they had these COVID lockdowns because, it, you know, COVID's terrible. You know, we have like nine people that died. And so they locked down the whole state of Calgary. And... Um, they locked down these churches, even though the churches wanted to meet. So they would like literally physically fence and lock the doors of these churches. So what these churches are doing is, all right, then we'll just hold an outdoor service. And in the beginning of June, when they were holding an outdoor service, people in the outdoor service would be like, I hear a helicopter. And these are police helicopters roaring across and above their outdoor service. These, the police in Calgary sent helicopters to look to see if anybody was gathering outside, not inside, outside, because the authorities demanded that all churches close down. They sent a helicopter to find proof of this. And so they arrested the pastor that held this outdoor service. Remember, scientifically speaking, outdoor gatherings had a effectively 0% chance of spread. Even, even as I say this, there is no COVID spreading in Calgary, Canada. But they would arrest Tim Stevens. Now, this is, for me, the real high point of this particular story. Can Canadian pastors are being arrested. Um, and you can look it up to see who they all are. Uh, but in this particular, most recent instance, um, 
the arresting officer would go to Pastor Stevens and said, he quoted Bible to him. This is what he said. You should render unto Caesar what is his. Tell me that's not insane. The arresting officer would say to the pastor, render unto Caesar's, Caesar what is his. Now the context of that, if you don't know, is when the Pharisees asked Jesus, should we pay taxes? And Jesus says, give me a coin. He goes, whose inscription is this? It's like Caesar's inscription. And then he, Jesus responded, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But that's not the only thing that he said. And he goes, give, render unto God what is God's. So you give to Caesar what is his, but you give to God what is his. That was the point that Jesus Christ is making. But this resting officer would cut off that verse into fitting why Pastor Stevens should be arrested. And this is how Pastor Stevens responded. He said, worship is the Lord's. And you can, you can find this video online of his whole family just crying because they're, they're losing their father. Um, they're losing their husband uh, because he just held an outdoor service. This is, this is what is happening around the world because fear has been inundated and we're so scared. We're scared of now cold. So I had a cold last week and I don't know if you could tell I had a cold last week, and I was like, I would tell people if I meet, meet, met with them one-on-one, -on -one, and if I met with you one-on-one, -on -one, this is what I said, I have a cold, but it could be COVID. I mean, it could be. I, mean, I had the vaccine, that's a second shot, I'm good, but it could be, and to see how they would respond. It's just like a test, but um, good, everybody passed. <laughs> everybody said, okay, that's cool, right? But they're fine with it. But that's that's where we are. We're in such a we're in such we're in such a state of fear um, that we're saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Why don't the government just take all of our, um, you know, my our religious responsibilities? That's what it is. It's not just about rights. It's not just about freedoms. It's a responsibility for us to worship God. You are a person. You are part of the family of God. Your responsibility is to worship God. And no one can take that away from you. No government can take it away. No structure, organization. They cannot dictate what you ought to do in regard to worship. Only the scriptures can tell us. Only God can tell us how to worship Him. Because worship is the Lord's. Now we're going to take the next few weeks to look into the scriptures about gifts or languages or tongues as uh, the term we might be more familiar with. And I have, I have a lot to say, I suppose, because the chapter has a lot to say. But this is something that I believe is correlated to what's happening here because I see people, so this, this just didn't happen once. This is happening and again and again. When people are telling me, hey, I know this person is a Christian, because when they were six or when they were seven or they were a kid, they spoke in tongue. Uh, nowhere in the scripture is that to be found. That's not how you know you're a Christian if you can speak in tongue when you're six. And that's why people who are growing up out of the church, their testimony, their deconstructionist theology now, they're saying, when I was a kid, I spoke in tongue. It's all garbage. Yeah, because I want to respond because you weren't a Christian. 
Just because you speak in some gibberish does not make you a Christian. The Bible teaches us who is a Christian, what a Christian ought to do, and how a Christian ought to live. And this is why we want to continue to go into the scriptures because I really do think it's dangerous. This is a poison. Excuse me. This is a poison that we have been given that we think that somehow tongues is correlated with salvation. It has nothing to do like zero. Not even 0.01%, zero to do with salvation. This is exactly what we see uh, the Corinthians, are go is, they're going through as well, or they have gone through. But the term glossa, the Greek word used here, glossa literally means tongue or languages. We have now like tongue, the organ tongue, like your tongue. It can mean tongue or languages. Now we have taken it to mean a third thing. Uh, which Paul addressed constantly in the last two chapters, but now that we're in chapter 14, it's in full force. Okay, In Genesis 11, God confused the languages of the men in the Babel Tower. The only other time we see this mass display of confusion is in Corinth. Now, there is a true gift of glossa or languages. There is a true gift and it was designed to be a sign to authenticate the validity of the apostolic age or the new covenant. Okay, This gift was designed to be a sign to authenticate the validity of the apostolic age or the new covenant. The Bible is a covenant book. When we say Old Testament and New Testament, testament comes from the Latin word testamentum. Testamentum means covenant. It means old covenant, new covenant. Signs were given to validate the new covenant. There is a true gift of languages that the early church possessed. We see this evidenced in Acts, in the beginning of Acts. But very soon after, we see that many had substituted the real gift with a counterfeit. And this counterfeit was common in pagan religions. And it's still common today across the world religions where you have this ecstatic or esoteric speech. Last week I mentioned the Kundalini Hindus as one example. But there are still many across the world today and there have been many throughout history. I could give you a whole list, but that's not the point. The question really is, how did the Corinthians end up where they did? Because I think that's important for us to also understand. How did the Corinthians end up where they did? The Corinthians were hung up on secular philosophies. In the first few chapters, we see that because they were hung up on secular philosophies and secular movements, there was massive division in the church. And Paul addressed this First, division isn't godly, it's secular. And look what these current secular ideologies are doing to our churches today. Instead of people searching for biblical principles that are unifying under the infallible, inerrant Word of God, we're looking for churches with a friendly welcoming team. Churches that have good children's programs, rockin' music, 
justice-related or community involvement. And while these things by themselves are not wrong, when we make these things a priority, this is when we have put the cart in front of the horse. And when you put the cart in front of the horse, it's not that you're not going to go anywhere. The point is, when you put the cart in front of the horse, you are no longer following, you are no longer following Christ. Adopting these secular philosophies and ideologies would lead them then to hero worship. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. I follow Christ in chapter 3. But these divisions, because they were following secular philosophies and ideologies, led immediately to the first thing Paul had to address. The sin that Paul had to address was sexual immorality in chapters 5 and 6. That's the first thing that he addresses. The Bible holds sexual immorality as a highly grievous sin. Some of you have asked me why the Bible holds sexual immorality as such a grievous sin. And my short answer to this, and we're going to get to that in the lifetime that we're here together, because it's everywhere, right? My short answer to that is sex is a gift from God, rightly used in the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. It glorifies God, and it points to the marriage between Christ and the church, the consummation of all things. That's the telos, that's the end, right? That's what it points to. It's so important that we get this. Never does the Bible whisper about sexual immorality, nor does it ever not take it seriously. Generations are ruined when David commits adultery. It's not just him that gets ruined. It's his whole generations after David are ruined because of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And that's the first thing Paul mentions when he addresses, after he addresses the division in the church. And he goes on. He goes on from chapter 5 and 6. Now in chapter 6, they're suing each other. In chapter 7, they had marriage all wrong. In chapters 8 to 10, they were adopting pagan feasts and rituals into their church service. They confused the role of women in chapter 11. In chapter 12, they confused the role of gifts. They all just wanted the showy ones, the esoteric ones, the ones that propped themselves up, and they lost what was most important. That should have undergirded everything, the eternal foundation of all that we do, which is love in chapter 13. Instead of loving others as they should, they loved themselves. They wanted to be connected to phenomena. It means show. Phenomena means show, right? And in connection with a deity, phenomena would show the divine thing. So if you're connected and you're showing something to phenomena, it means you're connected and you're showing the divine or mysterious things. This was very common in the pagan world we see it depicted in writings. We even see it in modern movies like 300. I don't know if people are familiar with it, but any, any like old Greek movie, 
we see this like phenomena happening where people are connected to the deity or mysterious things, right? In fact, the term used here, tongue speaking in verse 2, is glosais la latin. Glosais la latin. Now, this is how the Bible, the, the translation has it. The Bible translation has it. For one, in verse 2, it says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. So it's really literally just for the one that speaks, tongue speak. There's no inna in, a, in, a, in the Greek, right? There's no inna. So it's for the one who speaks, tongue speak. Does it to men, not God. That's, that's the literal translation for it. And so this is glossalalea. And this is what we see happening in the Corinthian church. This is what was happening. And Greco-Roman writers would write about this. Glossa la Leyen, right? They were writing about this as well during the time. It was to display what we would now know as pagan ecstasy. Pagan ecstasy. Tongue speak was not invented by the biblical writers. The motivation behind Glossais la Leyen wasn't agape. Okay? Agape is not the motivator of Glossais la Leyen. It is, what's agape? Agape is self-sacrificial love. What was behind, the motivator behind glosses laleian is what the Greeks called eros. It's what the Greeks called eros. Eros is what we know as sexual desire or erotic love. That's why it's called ecstatic speech. Ecstatic speech, it's the word for ecstasy, Okay. Eros is the desire for ecstasy. It's the desire for the ultimate experience because it's all about feeling. All the world movements today is entirely about ecstasy. It doesn't matter what movement we're talking about today. It doesn't matter what movement you're following on social media. It's about ecstasy. It revolves around the feeling and the stimulation of your emotions. But... But the Word of God is about not ecstasy. It's about loving God, the agape love, the self-sacrificial love. It's about loving God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. The people of God need to understand that the intellect is never detached from our faith. And to love properly, you must keep your guard up and your intellect engaged. The reason why we don't is because we're given into this ecstatic movement. We just care about the ecstasy. But that's not what Christians do. That's what pagans do. Not Christians, pagans. These feeling-oriented movements and secular ideologies, they are not new. Even in the time of Corinth, even Plato wrote about ecstatic speech, and he lived 400 years before Christ. What differentiated the gift of languages from all other paganistic expressions at the time was that this was the true gift of languages. People understood it as their home country language. It was a sign that God was there and the people of God were speaking the truth about God. You know, some of us still have a tough time with this. Maybe you're even tired of this. Got three more to go. But I have to tell you that the Bible does not leave us to our own devices. We are to test every spirit. 
Anything spiritual, we test it because we've been commanded to. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And How do we know that this is from God? And it goes on to teach us that it is about Jesus Christ coming from the flesh. It is about confessing Jesus. But it tells us specifically how we know that this spirit confesses Jesus. In verse 6 of John chapter 4, it says, We are from God. We, he's talking about the apostles, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Who are, the, who are the apostles? The apostles are the disciples of Jesus who wrote the Bible. They wrote the New Covenant, the New Testament. That's how we know. That's why we continue to study um, the Bible. In fact, later in this chapter, Paul writes in verse 32, all the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. All the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. That means everything that is written here doesn't contradict anything else in the Bible. So you will, you will never have an ecstatic experience that is sensual, erotic, an out-of-body, out-of-control experience. You will never have that as a Christian. And there is a reason for that. And that reason is as old as Genesis chapter 1, because God is a God of order. God is a God of order. In the final verse, Paul writes of this chapter, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's how we have order in this worship service, because we want to reflect what God is teaching us about his own character. But when you have paganism invade the church, you get precisely the opposite there is disorder and chaos. And so Paul is writing chapter 14 to correct this in the church, specifically on their understanding of the gift of languages or tongue. Now there are three parts to this, his teaching in chapter 14. And the three parts is number one, place. Number two, purpose. Number three, protocol. Place, purpose, protocol. In the first two sections, the first two sermons I'm going to do on chapter 14, we'll be going over the first part, the place of tongues, okay? The place of tongues is that it is secondary. The place of tongues is that it is secondary. Quickly, I will mention the place of tongues is secondary. The purpose, then, is a sign, and the protocol is then systematic. Why is the gift of tongues secondary? Because, Paul writes, prophecy is superior. And because, number two, tongues cannot edify. Tongues cannot edify. We're going to get into that. What is the purpose of all the gifts in the church? So we have been given gifts in chapter 12. What is the purpose of all the gifts that you have in the church? It is to build up. It is to edify. We have been given the various, almost innumerable gifts so that we could edify one another. That is why we ought to gather. And we, when we gather together, we exercise these gifts to edify one another. Let's just go over what it says about edification or building up in this chapter then. In verse 31, So all may learn, all be encouraged, 
That's what it means to edify. In verse 26, let all things be done for building up. That's the word for edification. In verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in edification. Verses 4 to 5, what we read today, it talks about building up. It talks about edifying. In this passage, we're going to see how Paul shows the Corinthian church that tongues do not edify, and especially not the ecstatic speech that they were confusing the real gift with. So in verse 1, it says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The word pursue means to persecute. Uh, the, the vast majority of the uses of this particular Greek word has been translated to persecute. That's the imagery here. How hard do you pursue after love? You pursue after love like Christians are being persecuted. It's to pursue with a fervor. And if you're pursuing love with this kind of fervor, you will want the gifts because you'll be loving each other and exercising and giving whatever you have. But most of all, especially, prophecy. Prophecy in its most basic definition means pro, which we know means before, and phemi, which means to speak. So it's to speak before someone else. That's the word for prophecy, to speak before someone else. In the Middle Ages, the meaning slightly changed, and now we think prophecy means to predict the future or something. But that's not what prophecy originally meant. It means to speak before people. And when the church of God would come together, it would be to hear the word of God spoken. This is what we still do today. We don't gather to hear ecstasies. We don't gather together to be puffed up. Rather, we gather to hear the word of God that we may all be edified. And I'll point that out again. That the only time the gift of languages was ever used was when someone understood what was being said. In Acts chapter 2, they understood that they were declaring the glories of God. And every subsequent mini Pentecost that we talked about, that means when the apostles will witness the Holy Spirit being given to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, when the Holy Spirit was being given, the gift of languages was shown to verify it because it was a sign. Not to edify, but to verify. The sign gift was never intended for edification. In fact, it is totally useless in edification. Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Here again is why tongues is secondary. In the Greek, there is an article in front of God. So it could suggest either God or a God. And in the Greek language, you could have understood it as both. It's harder for it to be conveyed in the English language. So that's why it's just translated as God. But there is an article in front of Theo, right? And that's to a God or a God. <clears throat> but whichever you believe it is, bottom line is this. All spiritual gifts are for edification. We went over this in chapter 12, but it's for the edification of others. You have a spiritual gift to minister and speak into others' lives. Spiritual gifts then aren't given 
to edify God, but it's for people. All gifts are given to build up or edify the body of Christ. God does not need you to minister to him. What is he, incomplete that we have to edify God? We need to build up God somehow? He has some ego we need to like puff up? That's not what God needs. He does not need us to minister to him. Is there something lacking in God that we have to do this? This makes absolutely no sense. God does not need you to talk to him in some form of ecstasy. In modern times, people from the charismatic movement claim then that this is a private prayer language to God. So you may have heard this too. Tongues is just a private prayer language to God. This is what Frank D. Micaiah writes from a Pentecostal perspective. <clears throat> Could it be, this is what uh, Micaiah is writing. Could it be that prayer as a rational, articulated response to God does not exhaust the human response? Poetry, song, dance, and silence have always been offered as examples of in-depth responses to God. Glossolalea, which we talked about, glossolalea is certainly one such response to God. Glossolalea, or tongue, can be used as a private devotion is their claim. It's just one of the responses that we could give to God like singing a song, or writing a poem, or dancing. But I believe statements like that miss the point. They miss the point about what a gift is. And then they miss the entire point of chapter 14. In fact, go through every single book in the New Testament, then go through every single book in the Old Testament, check every prayer. There is no recorded ecstatic speech in prayer ever ever but there is mention there is mention of it guess who mentions it it's jesus when he taught the disciples to pray this is when i have a lot of nerdy fun but i want to share this with you because i love you in chapter 6 of matthew verse 7 this is what jesus is saying when he's teaching his disciples how to pray when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not, and then you see in our translation, heap up empty phrases. Heap up empty phrases is just one word. And that one word, translated as four words in English, heap up empty phrases, that one word is bata logeo. Okay? Bata logeo. This is not actually a Greek word. This word never shows up anywhere else in the New Testament because this is a combined word. Logeo obviously is from the word lagos, which means word, right? Bata is an anamarapia. An anamarapia is a word that just sounds like the word that you're trying to describe. Does that make sense? So when you see Batman punch someone, you hear pow, right? Pow is an anamarapia. When you hear an explosion, what do you go? Boom. Boom is an anamarapia. Ding dong is when you hear the doorbell. That's an onomatopoeia. Bata is the prattling that Jesus heard in his time. So when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he's literally saying, don't do bata logeo. That's what he's saying. Don't do bata ta 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 ta. Don't pray like that. That's what he's saying. That's bata logeo. Don't say that. Pray intelligibly. And here is how you ought to pray. Our Father who is in heaven. 
The point is that when you speak in tongues, you're not ministering to people. That's not the kind of gift that it is. And if you think you are, you're confusing it with the secular and pagan view of tongues. No one understands you because you're thinking, you're uttering mysteries in the, in the spirit. And here is where I think verse 2 really harkens back to the hyperbole in chapter 13, where you understand the tongues of angels and understand all mysteries. It's not that you can, but how ridiculous you look in thinking that you can. Because he, con he directly contrasts this statement with the following verse. He contrasts verse 2 and verse 3. On the other hand, the one, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one that prophesies actually, they actually edify, they actually encourage, and they actually console. When prophecy happens, the word of God is preached. Can you see it? Can you see it? When the word of God is preached, people will be edified, they will be built up, encouraged to live a new life that they've been given. They will be challenged, but they will also be comforted in their sorrows and agonies. When we gather together, this is what we should long for then. The word preached, not batalogeo. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. What's the whole point of a gift? What have we been doing the last three chapters? The whole point of a gift is to edify the church. And then you might come to this verse and go, what about edifying yourself? Isn't that a thing? Isn't that right there in verse 4? Isn't that a thing? When you turn a gift to edify yourself, you pervert the word, you pervert what edify means. You don't use gifts to edify yourselves. You use gifts to edify others, namely the church. And that's what's constantly being said in chapter 14. Build the body. Build the body. Edify the church. Use your gifts for others. Serve the church. When you use this verse to say that you can edify yourself, you miss the point. You're not edifying the church. It's building yourself. You're puffing up the self. And that's the whole point of a sign gift. It points to something, right? It points to something. Once you are there, you don't need the sign anymore. Once you see a sign that says, this is the, this is the way to your house, once you get to the house, you don't need the sign anymore. The Holy Spirit has come upon the church. Now that he is here, it's time to build up. It's time to edify. Your gift isn't to edify God, and it's not to edify you. It's for others. That's why even the sign gift of languages was given. When it was given, God always had someone that understood it, that could interpret it. Now the word edify, I want to get into this really quickly, isn't always necessarily positive. It can actually be negative. In chapter 8, verse 10, if anyone who sees you like having knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? Uh, this is the exact same word for edify or build up in chapter 14. Will he not be encouraged? So they're going inside. So if you were, this is just a review of chapter 8. If you are eating inside an idol's temple, food offered to idols, will this person not be edified? That's the word. Will he not be edified if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. 
so you can edify to someone's destruction. The brother for whom Christ died is what Paul says to finish that. You can edify someone to their destruction. So edification itself is not the point. What is being edified and what you are edifying someone to do is important. In chapter 14, the point is that you are to edify the church to Christ. And edify the church, not yourself, is what love is. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not insist on its own way. Love is not self-seeking. It's not self-desiring. It's not about you. And even when it was a true gift, if there was no love, then you are no more than a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Why did God send someone to interpret? So that the church may be edified. God did not want something going on that did not build up. Now here we see that he wants everyone to speak in tongue. What is that about, right? When, he's, when Paul in particular says he wants a certain gift for everyone, it's hyperbole to emphasize a point because not everyone has the same gifts. This is an obvious statement of hyperbole. If you're reading 1 Corinthians, this is a hyperbolic statement. Like in chapter 7, verse 7, he goes, I wish all were as I myself am. That means he's saying, I wish everybody was single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. He wishes that everyone was single. Does he really want everyone to be single? We know that's not true. This is hyperbole. When he goes, I wish all were this gifting, he's trying to prove a point that he was making in the earlier verses about marriage. Each person has his own gift from God. If you thought he was mandating singleness, then you didn't read the first half of the verse. And here we have a similar construction. There's a hyperbolic statement. I want you all to speak in tongues. What's the point? The point is even more than that to prophesy. What's the point he's trying to emphasize here? Don't seek private edification. Don't seek the sensual and ecstatic. That means don't be primarily focused on feelings and sensations. This is what Pastor John MacArthur said that I really love. It's a pithy statement, but I think it's something that we can remember. He said, Christianity has never been predicated on a feeling. Christianity has never been predicated on a feeling. When the church comes together, let it be to prophesy and proclaim the word of God. This is why in gathering, the primary thing is to hear the word of God. This is what edifies the church. In the nursery rhyme of the three blind mice, the Oxford martyrs were called blind because the Roman Catholics believed that Protestantism blinded people. So these Protestants are just blind, right? But what Queen Mary I didn't realize was that by killing the 280-plus Protestant leaders that she did, she didn't kill the Protestant movement in England. In fact, it spread throughout England and even made its way across the ocean in 1620 here to the States through the Puritan pilgrims. That is our legacy. 
So what will destroy the church isn't persecution. And what blinds us isn't suffering. But it's when we chase after a feeling or sensation. It's when we are edified to something other than the Word of God. That's when you see the destruction of a church. So stand guard. He has promised that He will build His church. So pray that we will not be left behind. Pray that through the preaching and proclamation of God's Word, this church will be built up and that you will be edified to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given to us. Help us now to continue to be built up in the word so that we may become mature and that we may become sanctified by your holy word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, for your glory and to the glory of your precious name. Let's take this time to pray. And there are things that we ought to confess of, namely those things that we have just been conditioned to do, to seek the sensual, to seek just to be self-gratified, instead of to seeking to gratify others, to love the agape love that we have been taught in the Word, to speak the Word of God so that we can truly be edified rightly. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our hearts to the Lord that we may love Him with all our minds, hearts, and soul. Let's pray.